0: all over Europe, great ships sail west to conquer the new world, the Americas. The men eager to seek their fortune, to find new adventures in new lands. They long to cross uncharted seas and discover unknown countries, to find secret gold on a mountain trail high in the Andes. They dream of following the path of the setting sun that leads to El Dorado and the mysterious Cities of Gold. Welcome to another season of Exploration Radio. Exploration Radio is sponsored by the AIG, the Australian Institute of Geoscientists, and the MCA, the Minerals Council of Australia.
1: The Lost Cities project is the search for two gold mining centers that were mined by the Spanish from about the mid-1500s through to about 1600. The two centers are called LaGroño and Sevilla. We believe that those two gold mines were the same kind of deposit as Keith, our CEO, found at Fruta del Norte but actually exposed at at surface. And that's the target that we're we're focused on.
0: Finding the Lost Cities is a carefully designed exploration project, one that is over a decade in the making. Ever since I watched the first Indiana Jones movies as a kid, I always wanted to be a real life version of Indy. The hat, the whip, The character that was so wonderfully embodied by Harrison Ford, everything about that I just loved. That fascination of being a treasure hunter has always stayed with me. I don't think that's something unique to me though. I would like to think we all have within ourselves a desire to be a treasure hunter, to chase and find a bit of history like Indy did on the screen. In 1998, Keith Barron went to Ecuador to participate in a Spanish language school for a month. On this trip, he met a local historian, Professor Octavio Latore. That chance meeting started a nearly two decades-long search for two gold mines run by the conquistadors in the 1600s deep in the Ecuadorian jungle. Keith is often referred to as the Indiana Jones of mining. He does not have the hat or the whip, but his search for the lost cities of gold could easily be a plotline in one of the movies. On face value, that's what it seems like, a crazy treasure hunt in the jungles of South America. But there is so much more to this story than just a movie plotline welcome to exploration radio
1: now my approach to exploration has always been to maximize the piece of land that you have and if you're in the right piece of real estate the right piece of potentially productive real estate geologically speaking then you have the potential to have elephant sized deposits if nobody has been there before now i'm talking greenfields exploration as opposed to what we call brownfields. Brownfields usually means you're within a a stone's throw of an existing mine or a past producer. In greenfields exploration, you're going into areas where there's been very little exploration work previously. And certainly where we are in the Cordillera de Cuducu, there has been no previous exploration, except for the stuff that we have from back from the days of the conquistadors. So that's 400 years old. So there has been no modern mining company doing technologically sound exploration like we're doing.
0: Welcome to Exploration Radio, Keith. Thank you. We've been wanting to talk to you for a while. We missed you in Australia, so now we're finally getting a chance to catch you at PDACs. A lot of what we wanted to talk about is kind of how you got to where you are, but specifically also this project that you're working on now, which I think has a really neat historical story to it. So just to get started, do you want to give us a little bit of background about yourself? Well, good Lord, how long have we got? <laughs> as long as you want. Jeez. <laughs> oh, okay. Presently, I'm the,
1: the CEO and chairman of a Canadian company, Arania Resources Limited, exploring down in Ecuador. I, uh, I was born here in Toronto. Since then, I've lived in 19 different countries all over the planet. In my early days, I was always interested in collecting fossils and collecting minerals and things like that. And Mm -hmm. Now, where Toronto is situated, it's on Paleozoic rocks. There's a lot of places around the city, actually, where you can collect fossils. And where I grew up, my house, the the property adjoined a, a ravine. And down in the ravine, there were exposures of limestone and shale and that, and I could c- collect trilobites, bryzoans, nautiloids, all kinds of stuff wow. and i would I would bring it back and uh, I'd have it under my bed or whatever in in, in yeah. the house, and my mother would find it and throw it out, so I'd just go and collect some more. <laughs> yeah. Now, you have to go a couple hundred kilometers north of the city here, but then you get into Precambrian terrain. Mm-hmm. And, of course, there's all kinds of minerals there to pick up. Then even further north, you start getting into the area where the mines are, up mm-hmm. around Sudbury and then Timmins, Kirkland Lake, and where the gold mines are. And it's an incredibly diverse area for geology. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I didn't end up uh, getting into the mines until uh, I became a geologist
0: and, and started to work. So did you have an interest in going into kind of mineral exploration as a kid? I guess you were doing a lot more like paleontology rather well, than
1: Well, no, 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 not at all. In fact, I went to University of Toronto and I wanted to do medicine. Okay. I hated organic chemistry. Okay. <laughs> and I almost failed it. So I had taken a couple of half courses in geology. In the interim between, uh, well, when I was a teenager, when I was 15, I moved to the Isle of Man uh, in the Irish Sea. Yep. And uh, the Isle of Man is a very interesting place geologically because it actually has the second uh, largest mine in Europe. Mm-hmm. Rammelsberg is the first. The Great Laxey Mine is the second. It was a lead zinc silver mine that ran from about 1750 up to 1929, and it went right out under the sea. And so I was 15, 16, I'd go and hang around and collect minerals off the dumps uh, Sometimes I went underground. I wasn't supposed to, of course. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, you know, I'm
0: assuming the mine wasn't in operation
1: at this point. Oh, it hasn't been in operation for years. So I took geology there for two years, and then I came back to Canada to do my university. Then eventually decided that's it. I'm going to become a geologist and took the four years here. And uh, unfortunately, when I graduated, though there were no jobs.
0: Yeah, that's a pretty common uh, ailment <laughs> for many people, I think. When I started around
1: 81, 82, there were actually advertisements in the in the subway here, uh, career in the earth sciences. Yeah. Now, little did we know that the oil companies, the oil price would collapse. The oil companies would offload all their mineral subsidiaries and companies like Getty and Esso and Mobil, they all had mineral subsidiaries. They all got rid of them that's and all I- these people were thrown onto the market. So when I got out, uh, I actually, oh, I, I, I had one job. I was offered a permanent job working in British Columbia. Okay. And uh, I started that, but uh, very, very unfortunately, it was an extremely dry summer. And the province kicked us out of the bush uh, for fire ban. And we didn't get back again until for a month or so. Uh, And they gave me uh, the option, they said, you can either hang around here for a month at your own expense, or we'll fly you back to Toronto, and you can go and work for our uh, Toronto office. So I thought, well, I'll just come back to Toronto, and I did that, and I got here, and they said... Who the hell are you? <laughs> and I got, I got a, a, a mimeographed letter in the mail saying, thank you for your interest in our company. Oh, I was very, very upset. Yeah. Anyway, that was a very, very bad time. 1985, I ended up working in a plastics factory. Wow. Yeah, bagging up 20 kilo bags of granulated plastic and putting them on pallets. <laughs> uh, and I did this as soul-destroying work, and I did this just to, to keep bread on the table. In the meantime, I was auditing a couple of courses at University of Toronto here. And I went in one day and I saw an advertisement up on the wall for um, an exploration geologist. And I ripped it down, <laughs> stuffed it in my pocket. And uh, this is the, in the days before cell phones. I ran over to the, the closest phone booth and, and phoned them up. And I got an interview the next day and they gave me the job. And so I've never looked back since then. (laughs) Yeah, wow. And I I ended up working on a very, very interesting property, about 100 kilometers from Red Lake, northwestern Ontario. And it ended up being my PhD project.
0: Yeah, okay. So you you started working and then you went back and did your PhD? Is that right? Yeah, I, well, I, I... I guess your work and your PhD sounds like they were pretty much the same thing at some point. Well, after the episode at the plastics factory, I decided...
1: I had to take the search international, and I remember I sent 166 letters out, and I got 60 responses, that's all, and uh, at the time, we called these F-O-N-D letters, and, yep. and I'll let your, your listeners <laughs> figure out what that meant, but um, they all said, no, get lost, and um, anyway, I, I decided I had to go back to school, and I ostensibly started to do a master's, mm-hmm. but... Um, The provincial government here uh, gave me $50,000 for uh, fieldwork and analyses and that. And so I turned it into a PhD. That was a very good move for me. I got to interact with a lot of people, working on different projects worldwide, saw many, many things, went on many field trips. And actually, today, I'm an adjunct professor there, mm-hmm. as well as doing everything else.
0: <laughs> so you still have interest in, I guess, exploration, but you also have interest in the teaching the academic side?
1: Not really teaching, but uh, I think it's very, very important to encourage younger people, uh, explain what the what careers could be in the geosciences. And, you know, I, I think um, my story, not, not the part about plastics factory, but the rest of it is pretty encouraging. Uh, and, um, I have a lot of questions every time I speak, a lot of questions from lots of students.
0: But do you, you're interested in teaching them more, I guess, the applied side of the industry? Maybe even the business side.
1: So I've I've spoken at the business school several times. Mm -hmm. They don't get a lot of business people coming, coming by. Of course, most people who lecture to them are academics, I think it's important for these people to, to understand that it can be very, very rewarding, both uh, intellectually, but also financially. And in fact, uh, my, uh, my old university, University of Western Ontario, is, has been endowed several times by Pierre Lassonde, by Seymour Schulich. Mm-hmm. Now here in Toronto, uh, Rob McEwen, Peter Monk. Gave tremendous amounts of money to the universities. And I don't think a lot of these students even know who these people are. Uh, their names are on the buildings, right? But the money came from, from the mining business. And these people have all been very, very
0: successful. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So this is, I guess, part of you wanting to pay back a little bit as well along the way? Oh, yeah. Yeah.
1: And, and it's just a lot of fun. <laughs>
0: yeah, I <laughs> yeah. mean, uh, I say that because before we started the interview, you mentioned you just been on a three-week field trip with your alma mater at uh, the Galapagos Islands. So. Uh,
1: yeah, not three weeks, just 11 days. Uh, oh, if, okay. I, if I if I skived off for three weeks, I would have gotten in a lot of trouble. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I went with a, a, um, a bunch of alumni, most of whom were geologists. The Galapagos Islands, people think of the tortoises, they think of marine iguanas, blue-footed boobies, all these wonderful animals that Darwin described. But They don't realize that the geology is absolutely fantastic. Incredible volcanic landforms, active volcanoes today, fumaroles, you name it, lava tubes. I couldn't say enough good things about it to go and
0: visit. (laughs) Sounds like a great place to go and great Mm. trip. Yeah. So now earlier you mentioned some of the bad, which is the plastics factory, but you also (laughs) mentioned some of the good. So can we talk a little bit about how you got started in Ecuador and how Aurelian Resources came about?
1: It's a curious story. So... Back in in 1997, uh, I'm sure most of your listeners uh, know there was a a massive fraud in the mining industry called Briex. In Indonesia, $5 billion in in market capitalization that basically went poof and never came back. It went to money heaven. I had been working for a, a diamond company in Brazil. And I remember coming back to Canada in March of that year, which was when the fraud was uncovered. And I went through immigration, and and the immigration officer said to me, what were you doing in Brazil? And I said, working for a diamond company. And then he said, there's no gold. I said, what do you mean, no gold at all? Because I instantly knew what he was talking about. He said, none. I said, oh, my God, that's incredible. And it turned out to be the largest, the spectacular and very, very unfortunate fraud. But... um, after that, you couldn't raise a, a plug nickel in this town for, for expiration. Nothing, right? Yeah. My company wasn't able to uh, to raise any more money. I was unemployed again. In 98, I was at a little bit of a loose end. I actually had been doing a little bit, bit of work in uh, in Venezuela. Okay. And my lawyer said to me, Chavez is coming up for election, and there's probably going to be protesting in the streets and maybe firing off of guns. And so I'm uh, advising all of my foreign clients to take off for a month. And I thought, well, where am I going to go? And a friend of mine advised me to go to Ecuador, and he had just attended a a Spanish language school. And I'd never been to Ecuador before. I really didn't know anything about it. Uh, I'd been to many other countries in South America. So I, you know, I decided to enroll in the school. So I show up at the airport, they load me into a minibus, they take me to the the, uh, the school, and there's people from all different nationalities there. And they said, well, you know, we're going to give you a couple of introductory lessons here, and then you're going to go and meet your host family. You'll live with this family for one month in Spanish immersion, and they've been given instructions never to speak English to you, so that your Spanish will rapidly improve. Yep. Right.
0: It <laughs> sounds pretty full
1: on. <laughs> oh yeah, full on. So the, the first day it was all verbos regulares, irregular verbs, and uh, just terrible. And so my head was pounding at the end of the day. And I went to meet the, this uh, wonderful family headed up by Professor Octavio Latore, who was a professor of history. And uh, he said to me, within maybe an hour of arriving, he said, I went to Boston College for my PhD and I'm losing my English. So I'll make you a deal. We'll talk Spanish up until eight o'clock and then only English. For a whole month, every evening, he would bring out two quart bottles of beer, stick them on the table, and we'd talk nonsense and rubbish all through the night until we decided to go to bed. We went through many, many bottles of beer. (laughs) But he was an interesting chap because he had uh, worked for the mines department, even though he was a historian, career historian, Uh, He was an expert on the age of the conquistadors. And in 1981, there were two boys, uh, this is a true story, hunting wild pigs in the jungle. And they came across uh, a couple of old adits, old tunnels into the side of the mountain, told their father. The father came and investigated it and found gold in one of the tunnels. Within one month, there were 25,000 miners there. A place called Nambiha. Now, it turns out it had been a mine of the conquistadors. It was abandoned in 1603 after an epidemic of smallpox had killed all the labor force. They were using indigenous people as forced labor. So they had no one to work the mines, and the Spaniards just abandoned them. They walked away, and the jungle reclaimed them. After 1603, there's no more mention of them in the historical record. They're just lost. They vanish off the maps. Anyway, so... This uh, professor was hired because in the day there was no national mining law. They very quickly uh, adopted one. That's why they had this kind of free-for-all. 25,000 miners descending on this place. Uh, and they all had quasi-rights from being um, squatters. Yep. Anyway, what happened? The government said, look, we know that there are other ones out there. And if we can secure them for the, the, uh, the government's, keep the artisanal miners away, then we can vend the rights to Homestake or Newmont or whomever. And, and make then, it a little
0: bit more professional. Yeah, output, it'll, I be, guess.
1: it'll be technically sound operation and they'll actually pay taxes. Because nobody was paying taxes. at The other situation, right? That's right. And even today, it's a terrible eyesore. It's one of the most polluted places with mercury on the planet.
0: Wow. Okay. Yeah.
1: And and the the numbers are about a kilo of mercury for every ounce of gold that was extracted. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. Wow. And they would they would just burn it off in a frying pan, and it would end up in uh, on the foliage, on the ground, on on the trees, in the air, and people would breathe it in. There's a tremendous uh, amount of Minamata disease disease there which yeah. is a central nervous disease caused by mercury horrible place anyway that's so how long of did that.
0: the artisanal mining go on in still Nemea?
1: there oh wow yeah okay. there's a couple of thousand people there today yeah yeah Wow. yeah but um and you know because the gold price today the gold price has moved above sixteen hundred dollars again so it's lucrative for them to be there they yeah. never really abandoned it they all through the 80s the 90s up until now they there's been at least some people there yeah, yeah. So, anyway, the, the professor was hired to go through all the archives in Ecuador looking for mentions of lost minds. And he actually did find um, hundreds and hundreds of documents, contemporary maps, and all kinds of stuff. And when I met him, uh, he was no longer financed by the government, but he had decided to keep doing the work on his own nickel, so to speak. And he said to me, Keith, there had been seven famous mines in what was called the Viceroyalty of Peru, and which now includes Ecuador, Colombia, and Peru today. Yep. And the seven famous mines, one of them called uh, Zeruma Portobello, has never, ever been abandoned. It's been in constant production since then since the 1530s when Pizarro found the Inca working there. The other six lost. And uh, over time, all of them have been found again. And some of them put in production. Some of them are exhausted now, gone. Two of them are still missing. And the two are Lagrono de los Caballeros. And the other one is called Sevilla de Oro. And they were reputed at the time to be the richest places in the Spanish Empire. The whole of the empire, right? Yep. So uh, immediately I asked him, where are these things? And he said, well, I've got a very good idea. And I I said, well, I've got to go back to South Africa for my job. I came back out in 2000 and we decided to form a company and start looking for these things in earnest. So in January 2001, I decided to visit all the gold areas of of uh, Ecuador over a six-week-long trip. And I actually made a gold discovery on that trip. Found a, a gold-bearing breccia pipe mm-hmm. and, um, and pegged it. It was just uh, uh, 400 uh, hectares, very small piece of land. But I eventually grew that out to 96,000 hectares. I had a full staff, took the thing public in June of 2003 onto the stock market, raised a bunch of money. And then in 2006, Steve Leary, a uh, New Zealand geologist working for me, uh, and uh, Julio Soto, an Ecuadorian, uh, discovered uh, Fruita del Norte. Mm-hmm. And Fruita del Norte, uh, as we um, drilled it out and measured it, uh, came out to 13.7 million ounces of gold. Uh, fantastic discovery, beautiful epithermal, no expression on surface except geochemically, uh, there was arsenic, antimony, and mercury on surface, and, and we drilled right underneath the the, uh, the geochemical anomaly and, and hits. Mm-hmm. Uh, the share price went from 36 to 40, uh, 30 cents, eventually to 43 dollars, 10,000 percent increase. And in 2008, the company was sold for 1.2 billion Canadian. And so now it's owned by Lundin Gold. It went in production last November. They're producing gold hand over fist right now. It's going great guns. Yep. And I was very happy and privileged to to visit the operation, go underground, and uh, now I'm very, very, very pleased with, with what happened.
0: So before you go on, so I wanted to ask, so the the original mineralized breccia pipe that you found, how yeah. did you get onto that? Was that going through historical records?
1: No, 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 just walking around.
0: Yeah, wow. Yeah, okay. yeah. So let's go back to when you uh, met, Professor Latore. Yes. So what was the year that you... you 98. 98, okay. And then how long did it take for you to kind of get the company set up?
1: Well, uh, I was just visiting in 98. So I, I went back in 2000 for another visit. And then 2001, set up the company in December 2000.
0: But yeah. you privately financed that
1: company for a couple of years, didn't you? Oh, yeah, you right up until uh, we went public in June 2003. It was financed out of my pocket. So that's why I became the largest shareholder of Virilion, mm-hmm. And I stayed the largest shareholder right until the takeout because it was all funded out of my, my hip pocket. Yeah, wow. And, uh, you know, I'd, I'd been frugal enough with these jobs after the plastics factory fiasco. Yeah. Yeah. But as I said, you know, I, I lived in 19 different countries. I worked many, many different places and was able to, uh, to put some, some money aside. So, you know, uh, when we went public, I had spent actually $750,000. Every nickel I had in the, in the world uh, I remember on the day we went public, I was $44,000 in debt on my credit card. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and uh, I, I got uh, some money back out of the company on the first financing, 200000 and that took care of that debt. So I was fine after that. So after Furtido del Norte and Aurelian and was bought, actually by Kinross, mm-hmm. that was in 2008. I actually moved to Switzerland. I retired Uh, For three weeks, got very very bored, and I said, "That's it, I'm going back to Ecuador." So I went back, and I hooked up with the 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 professor again, and I said, "We're going to do this research properly," and I had the money to finance it. So following two years, we spent in archives in Lima in Peru, in the Biblioteca Nacional in Madrid in a lot of time in the Archivos de los Indios, the Archive of the Indies, in Seville in Spain, yep. and uh, two trips to the Vatican Library. And in the Vatican Library, I found a book from 1628, written by uh, a Carmelite priest by the name of Antonio Vasquez de Espinosa, and he had lived in the New World for 22 years, gone back to Seville to retire and write his memoirs, yes. and then died within a couple of years after doing that only part of his uh, book was actually printed the rest is handwritten and there's only one copy and oh, it's wow. in the manus- manuscript section of the uh, of the Vatican library and i got to see this thing and handle it and check it out and in it was a very explicit instruction how to get to Sevilla d'Oro from the town of Riobamba mm-hmm. now Riobamba still exists so it said you had to go and cross, you know, various rivers and go up over the, uh, the Andes, the, what they call the Paramo, and, uh, and cross down on the other side. Uh, it mentioned the Opano River. It's now called the Upano. It essentially said on the other side of the river is where Sevilla de Oro is. Mm-hmm. So there had been a moratorium on staking new ground in Ecuador. On the day that it came off which was here at the PDAC in uh, in 20, uh, 16 uh, 2016 that's right I was ready and poised while everyone was at the cocktail party uh, with the the minister uh, 1201 started banging in concessions on the uh, on the internet and
0: uh, were you worried that artisanals would have would have found this thing while the moratorium was on
1: I was always worried and I actually made five trips to the field with the professor and at one place we ran into uh, an, an indigenous gentleman from the Shuar tribe elderly man with his three sons and he was watching me i was uh i was down in the, in the stream and i was panning uh, with a gold pan and he said uh, in spanish he said what are you doing and i said i'm i'm washing for gold and i said and he says well there's no gold here and i said well There's a tiny bit of gold. I can see it in the pan. He says, ah. He says, that's nothing. He says, dos más horas más alto. He says, bastante oro. He says, two more hours up the hill, right? There's lots and lots of gold. And I said, is there anybody mining it? And he says, ah. He says, that's too much hard work. (laughs) So, uh I never actually got to go up there because in in their ter- terminology if it's 2 hours for them, it's going to be 6 hours for me. Yeah, because they're just used to negotiating. They they move very very fast through the jungle, a lot faster than I can. And uh I just never had the time to go out and check it out, but we we knew that there were there were gold showings around and in fact we found one Uh, alluvial mine in operation that wasn't even recorded by the government. Mm -hmm. Uh, There were a bunch of people in there, and we went back there, made friends with the people. We were back there many, many times. Anyway, the the ground that I pegged, uh, 208,000 hectares, got the whole thing intact. And then since then, uh, rather than treasure hunt, we've been going at it
0: systematically. So one of the things I was going to ask is that when you tell the story, that does seem like it's a bit of a treasure hunt. In the early days, did you have any problem that people thought that this was kind of an Indiana Jones plot line and they didn't take it seriously?
1: Well, you know, it's funny. I, I've been approached by uh, seven production companies now mm-hmm. to film reality TV around this. Yeah, And I said, look, you know, I don't want a bunch of clowns coming in and, and making us all look like we're... Bunch of lunatics running around the jungle," <laughs> yeah. I, I said. I, "I have a PhD in geology and 36 years' experience in the business, and, yeah. and um, uh, you know this is this is not uh, an, an endeavor that is just silly. We have more than 500 documents now. Uh, original documents from the various archives, including ma- a map from 1585, mm-hmm. uh, showing that these places were real. You know, it's not like a story out of Treasure Island. And and I think if a lot of the media got involved in this, that's the way they would try to portray it, right? Yeah, yeah. And and hype it up a little bit more than I would want it to be.
0: And you also risk it becoming, you know, like the like the the myth of El Dorado and these things. Yeah, There's so many yeah, things yeah. that people could like attach to it. Sure. So I want to ask one question, which I saw on your website. You say, we are geologists in the mineral exploration business, optimistic by nature, but also conservative and skeptical. Yes. Is that your way of kind of saying that although there's the historical aspect, which is the kind of the treasure hunt aspect, mm-hmm. you are now applying modern techniques, modern exploration techniques to actually solve a geological problem, not necessarily a historical problem? Would that well, be a good way to put we, it? We We've done it from day one. And... You know, I
1: think at the end of the day, we will find these two lost mining areas, but my business is to find minerals. Uh, mm-hmm. And I don't care what it is. This stuff that we found so far couldn't have ever been found by the, uh, the conquistadors. Mm-hmm. Uh, though when we got the rights, really, it was almost a blank slate. The mapping had been interpreted from satellite images. Mm-hmm. It was all sediments across the entire property. And people said, I was mad for picking up 208,000 hectares. It cost me $2 million U.S. Mm-hmm. In, in, in fees from the government to, yeah. to hold this. But when we started to explore it, we found um, uh, an incredible epithermal field with sinters and tax sinters from the Jurassic. Uh, we have 20 epithermal gold silver targets right now. 30 porphyry copper targets eight of which we've ground truth we mm-hmm. know they are porphyry copper yeah. for sure and we found an incredible um and for the very first time ever in the history of the country copper and silver in sediments it's at the surface is dipping about five to ten degrees but it goes for 23 kilometers we've traced this thing out so it's it's like uh, the Kuferschiefer in germany and poland or, like the Zambian copper belt, we're very, very excited about it. You know, we're doing soil sampling, we're doing geophysics, we're doing uh, stream sediment sampling, and turning up a tremendous number of targets. It's only 100 kilometers north of, of Frida del Norte in the same mineral belt. So, it makes perfect sense that there's going to be something there, right?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Frida del Norte didn't have any gold on the surface, it was a geochemical anomaly arsenic, antimony, mercury, and a couple of other pathfinders, and we're finding the same sort of thing. If there had been a lot of gold on surface, then potentially it would have been like another Dambiha in the more modern age and have 25,000 miners on it. Yeah, It's just by virtue of the fact that this area is very, very remote and doesn't have a lot of infrastructure that it hasn't had a lot of people crawling all over it. I think that makes total sense. Yeah, but we've just... Uh, completed a LIDAR survey. Okay. And there's things that, to me anyway, look like they could be old historic workings. But uh, we did find a Spanish road several months ago. We found some stone blocks on it that were obviously squared and, and dressed for some purpose. They wouldn't really have had a uh, any buildings in the area, except maybe for a treasury building. Okay. And the treasury building would have been where they'd taken... Uh, gold nuggets, gold dust, whatever, uh, and turned it into bars. And we have the names of the treasurers, so we knew know that they were there. And they would turn this into bar gold, uh, put the tax stamps all over it because the king got paid twenty percent. They called it the king's fifth.
0: That's right.
1: Yeah, and if you didn't, if you had gold in your possession and it didn't have a tax stamp on it, you could be hung. Wow. Okay. It was contraband. Mm-hmm. But and then you know. Uh, people say to me, "Well, why was there this road, and what purpose would would you have with the road?" And remember, they were using the indigenous people as forced labor, and they really didn't like the situation too much. Yeah. And every opportunity they took, they would they would kill the, the Spaniards,
0: right? Yeah, that's right. Because the history of these mines is that there were a number of rebellions. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Indigenous rebellions. La
1: was destroyed three times, burned to the ground. So. So, you know, if you have a bunch of gold bars in your saddlebags, you want to hightail it out of there as fast as you can and get the civilization. And so I think that's why they constructed these roads. And yeah. they, they would have, you know, also, when they had um, trouble, they would bring soldiers in mm-hmm. uh, from uh, garrisons uh, around the countryside to uh, to help what they, they called pacification, which was really annihilation. Yeah. It's a horrible thing. It's a horrible
0: place in history so I should say that when you talk about this project you don't hide away from the fact that there is a an ugly element to the history of this uh, region as well which...
1: yeah but that was a long 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 time ago and these people weren't even considered to be human they were considered as chattels right and <laughs> times have changed and thank god right now, today, we have three indigenous geologists working for us, members of the Schwar community. Mm-hmm. Our head of corporate social responsibility is Fulbright Shuar. We have more than 200 indigenous people working for the company right now. And we're the biggest employer, in fact, the only employer in the area. Uh, their other alternative is subsistence agriculture. I have a private foundation that I run in tandem with the company. And we look after educational initiatives and health initiatives for the kids. Mm -hmm. And we found that the kids are too small for their age. They're undernourished. They're not malnourished, but they're undernourished. Okay. And so we're trying to do something about it. They're only getting on average two meals of protein a week, if you can believe that. Living off cassava root and plantain. Yeah, and that's not good. So uh, something's got to change. In fact, in the middle of this month, I'm going to the field, visiting several villages with uh, uh, the Minister for Social Inclusion. And they've never been to this part of the country, really, because the the, the government is strapped for cash and they can't afford to get in there by Cessna. So wow. uh, they're going to come as our guests and they'll get to see the area and, and, and hopefully uh, give these people some relief besides uh, what I'm doing with, with the company.
0: Mm-hmm. I mean, that's great. I think from a social responsibility point of view, you probably don't have to do this stuff, but it's good that you guys are taking this on.
1: It's it's the right thing to do. So there's a number of things, initiatives, that wouldn't really be in the purview of an exploration company. And we're only a little company, right? A mm-hmm. junior. Uh, we're, we're not BHP or RTZ or something. Some of the investors want to see the money go into the ground, and rightly so. So I pick up the slack with my own resources. And Mm -hmm. yeah, it's really funny. Um, Last October, there was a little bit of a skirmish in in, uh, the capital city in Quito when they put fuel prices up. There were some minor things that went on for about five days and protests and things. I found out there were um, members of the Shuar community who were uh, walking to town. It's a two-day walk. Mm -hmm. uh, And they wanted to see me. <laughs> and they got the town. And I said, So, uh, you know, really, what's up, fellas? <laughs> and they said, Oh, we just wanted to know if the football tournament's still going on. <laughs> <laughs> the really important stuff. <laughs> if, the, if the footy's still going on. Yeah. So I, we had one of the programs is uh, a football tournament for 10 villages, yeah. both women's teams and men's teams. And, and we kitted them all out with uniforms, jerseys, and Boots and everything. That was really funny. And there was one village that joined very, very late. And I said to them, "Look, we can't get you, you know, the numbers that you want and types of jerseys that you want because it's too late." Mm -hmm. And they said, "Well, we we really don't care about that. We'll take anything that's available." So I took one of their representatives to the to the shop where we bought the stuff, and they picked out (laughs) a bunch of stuff. I didn't see what they picked out, but I saw photographs of it later. And they're wearing these jerseys that say "Fly Emirates" on them because it's it's the uniform for Real Madrid. (laughs) (laughs) Isn't that funny? That's brilliant. Yeah, yeah. So it's uh, we have a very good relationship with these people, Mm -hmm. and uh, you know they're the stakeholders. They their people have been there for thousands of years you know at uh, up until the 1950s and 60s they were hunter-gatherer societies and then they were made to live in in villages uh, static villages Mm -hmm. and now you can walk for five days from a village and not see an animal or a bird because they've all been hunted out to extinction and this is the reason why there's no protein in the diet you know they would go and they would catch a deer or a uh, a tapir or something like that, a large animal, would feed the, the village for a couple of weeks. And now it's a situation where they, they catch armadillos, they catch frogs, they catch uh, a little fish out of the river. These are all things that they wouldn't even consider to be a food source as, you know, even three years ago. Yeah, wow. So uh, something has to change here. It really has to. On our concessions, there's more than 5,000 children. 5,000 children. What are they all going to do yeah. when they reach adulthood? There's no jobs for them. Hopefully, through our exploration efforts, we we will bring some development to the area. And then they can actually stay on the land and have their social safety nets intact with their families. Yeah. Um, much like companies have done it up in the northern part of Canada where the diamond... Uh, mines are. Mm-hmm. Um, those mines are are 80 to 90 percent uh, indigenous labor.
0: That's right. Yeah. Um, and it's worked very, very well. So listening to that, Keith, is this become more than just a search for a mineral deposit or a mineral discovery? Has it become more of a personal quest in trying to improve this area as well and do something for the, the people that live there locally?
1: Well, wouldn't that be a great thing? I'm 57 years of age and this project, uh, I expect it's going to be my last one.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I'd like to do something that's lasting here. I mean, Fred del Norte employs over a thousand people. There we're 2,800 people involved in the construction. Mm-hmm. Uh, what a shot in the arm that was for the the region. You know, when I first entered there, <laughs> I, I remember uh, having a meeting uh, in one of the villages, and I, I, I actually went by the church and I said, "How many men here?" have a job. And nobody put up their hand. I said, how many want a job? And everybody put up their hand. And I said, well, I'm going to give you a job. And they said, well, what is it? And I said, I want a bunch of trails cleaned out with machetes. And one of them yells out, he says, well, we do that every day anyway. (laughs) (laughs) And then they said, what's the pay? And I said, I'm going to pay you the, the Ecuadorian national wage, which at the time was $6 a day. And I had 17 people show up on Monday morning, and I worked alongside them for a week, paid them cash money on the Friday. And then the following Monday, I had 55 people (laughs) show up (laughs) looking for work. Yeah, yeah. You know, best way to demonstrate transparency in these situations is to work alongside the people. And Mm -hmm. they realize that you don't have horns growing out of your head. And you slip down the hillsides just <laughs> just like anybody else. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so we've made a lot of really, really great
0: friends. So one of the reasons why we wanted you on this podcast is because there's obviously a lot of projects that have a story where people are searching for the deposit. And that's mm-hmm. really what's driving him. But having met you and we did the pre-interview and I, and, and I genuinely get the sense that there is more to the story rather than just finding a mineral deposit. The stuff that you're talking about, your quest about trying to go through history, your quest about trying to help the indigenous population, there seems to be a lot more behind the story than just your personal desire to find another mineral deposit. And that's what I think is really interesting about the story.
1: So it's a lot of fun. All, all the different aspects. If you look on our website, Irania.com, you'll see a whole bunch of videos. Now, the first videos were shot with Professor Latore. Unfortunately, he's deceased now. Mm-hmm. But he got Parkinson's disease, and he was losing the ability to speak. And we wanted to get him on tape, mm-hmm. on video. So we shot about 40 hours and condensed that down into two or three videos, which we presented very, very early on. And then we just kind of continued on. One of the the latest ones is actually of me playing Father Christmas, wearing a Santa suit uh, and visiting three villages uh, just before Christmas. And uh, I gave out 850 presents to the, to the kids. <laughs> <laughs> <That's laughs> it was a lot of fun. Yeah. So one of the
0: questions I had is, do you think you'd be able to do the stuff you're doing in Irania now if you mm-hmm. didn't have the earliest success? I mean, surely that has helped you. I guess, get credibility in your own words, not seem like a bunch of yahoos running around the jungle? <laughs> well, the
1: law in Ecuador now is that you have to be, it's kind of like pre-cleared, pre-clearance before you apply for uh, mineral concessions, mm-hmm. because they don't want a lot of people who are just speculators and don't have any track history of, of expiration. Yeah. I think if I had not had the success with Aurelian, they wouldn't have allowed me to, to take up 200,000 hectares
0: but surely your intentions the way you're operating also help you as well right they have a little bit of history you know the work that you did with professor Latore the work that you're Mm. doing with communities Yeah. surely that makes you a better corporate member or someone applying for licenses than other people as well
1: well as I said we've got the minister for social inclusion coming down to the Mm -hmm. property and he's in the cabinet so hopefully he's going to spread the word and say nice things about Mm -hmm. us yeah the vice minister of mining is coming. The new vice minister is coming down as well, and uh, yeah, it should be um, it should be a great trip. We the former vice minister came down to the property, the only senior member of government ever to visit that part of the world. Nobody had been in there before. Yeah, yeah. and 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 the people living there were very
0: very impressed by that. Yeah. Mm. So now looking back, Keith, would you do something different? Would I do something different? Perhaps not work in the plastics factory? <laughs>
1: <laughs> do you know, here's what happened with the plastics factory. I, I had enough of it and I quit. There were signs all over the place saying no smoking, no smoking, no smoking. And there were two buttheads who were uh, about 16 years old working alongside me. And I've got a degree, right? And these guys have got nothing. And they thought it was being smart, Alex hiding behind the pallets and smoking yeah. right two weeks after i left the place it burned to the ground <laughs> i don't know if it was them or what happened yeah. but uh yeah.
0: good riddance to yeah. the place sometimes yeah. karma has a good way of leveling <laughs> things out so. yeah yeah yeah
1: no i don't think i'd do much different uh, even some of the bad experience i had I spent uh, a couple years working in Kazakhstan, and it was very, very tough early on in uh, in the, the mid '90s. And uh, but I've got a lot of stories out of it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you know, I think it was actually David Lowell, who's a very, very famous geologist, He's found many, many mines. I met him quite a few years ago at a Vancouver conference, and and he told me. The one with the most stories wins at the end of the day. That's all
0: right. That's all
1: right. And I, I I actually mentioned him to you to, to get him on your show at some point, if you
0: can. Yeah, yeah, yeah we've been talking to him. So, so if you ever see Dave, you know, just kind of give him an elbow in the ribs to, to convince him to come on. Well, it might hurt him. He's in his 90s That's now. Right. That's right. So we always end our interview with two questions, Keith. Oh, dear. Okay. So the first question is... What is something that you think needs to die in mining? It could be an idea, a concept, a behavior, something that you think we need to get rid of in our industry.
1: Well, I hate to say it, and some people will criticize me for this, but artisanal mining. Mm -hmm. And, okay, there are a number of folks who are there just trying to feed their families, and, and, and that's a bona fide effort. But whenever anybody finds anything that's any good, then organized crime moves in, then there's a propensity to buy off the police, uh, the army, the politicians, and everything kind of uh, goes sideways quickly. Mm-hmm. And I've seen it many, many, many times in many different parts of the world. It doesn't happen here in Canada. It used to, yep. but it you know something like that hasn't been around here for over a hundred years. But still today, it's it's happening in Africa, in Asia, all over South America. Central America, I think uh, artisanal miners typically will just rape and pillage the land uh, in gold sense. they'll use mercury, mm-hmm. poison the land, and then at the end of the day, they walk away from it, and they never have any money for reclamation. So they just leave the place looking like the battlefield of the Somme from the First World War, yeah. full big holes with stagnant water growing malaria-ridden mosquitoes. I think it's a scourge, and uh, I think
0: it needs to end worldwide. Great one, that's a great one. So conversely, and last question, what is something that you think we need to maintain in our industry at all costs, something that is fundamental to our DNA?
1: You know, we've been talking about corporate social responsibility. When I started in this business in the 1980s, I worked with a lot of managers who started their careers in the 1940s and 1950s. There was this policy: local people don't engage with them, don't don't even look at them, don't talk to them, right? Just do your job, yeah. And and that's that, right?
0: And it's uh, a very us and them kind of strategy in that sense.
1: Yeah, yeah. You know, I I was I I was actually working in Australia, uh, in Queensland mm-hmm. in 1988, and uh, I was working for an American company, and they had had. Um, some geologists had given a lift to a person at the side of the road and then got into a, uh, a a car accident and that person had been injured and they sued the company for a lot of money. And so we had a, uh, a memo come through uh, from the head office in, in Dallas, Texas, saying, oh, no, it was Houston. They said, you will no longer pick up hitchhikers. Yeah. Well, you know... I, I was the main means of, of transporting kids to the elementary school. They climb in the back of the bucky and off we go, right? Yeah. And suddenly I can't do that anymore. And I just have to drive past them and, and wave at them. And they wave at me and they say, hey, what, what's going on, right? And the people in America didn't get it. Yeah. It caused a lot of friction with the, the local people. And it's little things like that, right? It's very, very important to uh, to understand
0: I mean, I think the unfortunate part there is really the fact that you know, like the decisions are made in a corporate office, which is so far removed from people that are actually dealing yeah. with the issues on the ground. Yes, there's a lot that gets lost in translation between the two. Yeah,
1: yeah, and, and maybe what has to happen is uh, is the big shots have to go and spend a month or two in a living in a tent. <laughs> Uh, with the guys who are in the field and see actually what the the issues are. Yeah,
0: I mean, which is kind of like the Toyota model, right? Toyota forces their managers to kind of understand all parts of the business before they start making yeah. decisions.
1: Yeah. Well, I think Mr. Bristol running running Barrick has had a lot of bush time, but I don't know about <laughs> a lot of it. other executives. When our project got uh, bought by Kinross, the yeah. the president of of Kinross was Ty Burt who was an investment banker from Deutsche. And I don't think he'd ever got his <laughs> his hands dirty or his, even his boots dirty. But um, no, no, it, that, that kind of corporate culture has to end.
0: I think that's a pretty good spot to end on. Okay. Thanks a lot for joining us, Keith. This is great. Been lots of fun. Thank you so much. Cheers. Exploration Radio is brought to you by Ahmad Salim and Steve Beresford. This episode was produced by Ahmad Salim and Michael Carter. Edited by Hamayu Mir and Sean Jeffery and recorded live at the 2020 PDAC Conference in Toronto, Canada. The PDAC Conference is also a sponsor of this podcast. If you would like to know more about this podcast, then check out explorationradio.com, or you can follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter. If you like this podcast, then consider becoming a sponsor to help us continue producing more of this content. You can email us on info at explorationradio.com. Until next time, let's keep exploring.